Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Welcome to Kaya. It's time to preach. I mean, you can hang out up here if you want, man, but... All right, um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14. Uh, over the last, man, we've been, we've been in Acts um, for the better part of a year and a half now. And uh, Acts is a book uh, that tells the story of the early church and the way that God used the early, very earliest disciples and apostles uh, to go and to preach the gospel to the entire known world. And if you've been with us, you've known that it's also a book of transition. And what we've seen happen up to this point is that the emphasis of the gospel message, the story of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, first went to the, to the Jews, starting in Jerusalem. And, uh, and the, the gospel was preached to the children of Israel, and that was very, very intentional on God's part. Uh, his intention is that the Jews first would receive him. And um, when they did not, okay, over and over and over again, as God has given the Jewish people opportunity to receive the terms of the gospel and the story of Jesus Christ, they failed to receive it, right? And uh, in Acts chapter 13, we, we just got done telling a really exciting story. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle Barnabas were both sent out and ordained for missions work. And they're sent out from the church in Antioch to go and to preach the gospel. And they set sail, full of faith, and they went to uh, the island of Cyprus. They preached the gospel there. To make a long story short, they, they, they bumped into a sorcerer. No big deal. Yeah, side note there. All right, so there was, there was some oppression right away. There was resistance to the gospel right away. Uh, but they preached the gospel. It was, it was well received among some in Cyprus. And then they, they set out and headed towards Asia Minor, the coast, to a city called Perga. There they lost their friend, John Mark, the, the young man who had originally intended to be a disciple of Paul and Barnabas. He wanted to, to follow in their footsteps, decided to head back home. It was too much for him. He goes back to Jerusalem. And then Paul and Barnabas leave and head to, toward Antioch of Pisidia, different, a different city, a different Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia. They preach the gospel there. They go to the, the synagogue. They preach the gospel there. Some receive it. Some don't. And the Jews that are there begin to resist the message, and they expel them from the city. Okay, so let's look back at Acts chapter 13, if we can, just by way of review. I don't want to move too fast. I also don't want to leave people behind. If you, if you haven't been with us, I want to give you some context for where we're headed. Acts chapter 13, verse 47. We'll start there. For So hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. In other words, God is making it clear again that he wants to use Paul and Barnabas in the lives of the Gentile people. And, and the word Gentile just means non-Jewish people. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And that's a crucial thing to understand because if someone's going to receive the gospel and receive Jesus Christ, it has to be on the terms of his word. And this phrase, the word of the Lord, appears 2,664 times in the Bible. It's a lot of times that that phrase is used. And that's because God is emphasizing his word. If you know anything about uh, the Gospels, you know that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is referred to as the Word. He's the living Word. And so Jesus Christ Himself personifies the entire message that God has for His people. He exemplifies and He lives it out for us to see in the Gospels. Very, very important. And so if you're going to receive Jesus Christ, you have to do it on the terms of His Word. You can't receive Jesus Christ any old way. Right? You have to see, receive him on, on his terms. A lot of people in the world today have taken and stolen the name of Jesus Christ. They've applied a completely different narrative, a, a completely different historical account to the name of Jesus Christ. And there are false 
messages of Jesus Christ in our world. And we have to really understand that if we're going to receive Jesus Christ, it has to be on the basis of what is taught in the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. You understand? Jesus Christ is, is who he says he is, not who you say he is. And so as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, that's an issue of foreknowledge there. If you have questions about that, we can talk about that one-on-one. We don't have time for that today. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Verse 50 says, But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas. There's persecution. That's not going to be something that happens one time between now and the end of the book. We're going to see this over and over and over again. Persecution taking place. And they were expelled from, from out of their coasts, but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. And last week we talked about this idea that when Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet, it was symbolic of, of their need to turn away from those who refuse them and turn unto those who are ready to receive them. And it's based on something Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 4, And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and, then, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And that's exactly what they did. When the message of the gospel was refused by the people, okay, they recognized that they had a need to go and see, uh, sow as many seeds as possible. And so they didn't take time to mourn and grieve the fact that they were refused, that the gospel message was refused. They got right back to work. And today we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be talking about how God uses Paul and Barnabas to establish for us a, a pattern for ministry, a pattern for ministry. And I don't I don't want to give too much away. We're going to pray first, and then we'll we'll get into it if that's okay with you. All right, we're going to pray. Everybody with me? Yes. All right, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time. Lord, we thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, through the message of Acts, the story of Acts, Lord, the way that you're provoking us as a ministry uh, to be evangelical, to take the ministry of discipleship and teaching people your word, taking that seriously. God, you're lighting a fire in my heart, and I can see that same fire being lit in the hearts of those who are a part of this, of this ministry and this fellowship. And, and Lord, I pray that we would continue to learn and to glean, Lord, that we would mature. There's a lot of young believers here. There's a lot of young disciples, young people who are just now getting a grasp of your word. And Satan is going to do everything that he can to disrupt that. And Lord, ultimately to disarm the, 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 the young believers who are beginning to follow after you and establish a pattern in their own life of ministry work. He's going to want to, he's going to, want to destroy that in their lives. And so Lord, I pray your protection. And Lord, I pray that that your word would grab hold of them and that they would in turn grab hold of it in a way that would strengthen them and lay a foundation that no man and no enemy and no principality can ultimately disrupt. And that, Lord, that they would live lives of faith and that one day that they would pass from this earth into eternity and stand before you with a testimony that deserves the saying, well done, good and faithful uh, servant. Lord, we, we want that to be said of us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that that work would be established even right now in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That, uh, throughout the book of Acts, we've talked a lot about this idea of identity. Identity. Now, identity is established by one's devotion to a concept. You understand? And so think about all the things that people identify with. They first identify with something conceptual, an idea, right? That's where identity begins, is I associate myself in my mind and then in my heart with some sort of idea or concept or image, and I attach myself to that, and then I inundate myself with that. I fill my life with that way of thinking. And then I begin to pattern my life based on the way that identity manifests itself in my life, and I build a pattern around that perspective. Are you with me? I'm not trying to be heavy, 
Is that going to keep happening, Chance? You got to help me here, man. I'm going to keep cutting out. What do I need to, what do, I need to do? Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you. All right. All right. My pants aren't too tight, are they? Does it have anything to do with how tight my pants are? Chance. Okay, thank you. So in other words, the thing that you say and you do a lot, the, thing, the things that come out of your, your mouth often and the, and the actions that you do often inform the way people understand who you are. And there are certain things throughout Acts that Paul became known for and that we know him for. The first thing is that he's a, a preacher of the gospel. We've already seen that. That everywhere that he goes, he speaks the gospel truth. The next thing that we see is that he trains new believers everywhere that he goes. Those who convert to Christianity, he spends time investing in their lives and establishing them in strength, in sanctification, a lifestyle of growth in the Word of God. And then what he does is he leaves a church behind. He plants churches and he leaves behind a work that can continue on whether he's there or not. He was a man of purpose, a man of ambition. He was calculated and determined, and determined in his pursuit of saving souls. His whole life revolved around this idea that, that he was going to be used to see souls saved for the name of Jesus Christ. This is what he did. This was his identity. Paul exemplified this concept of sacrifice for pursuit of the eternal. His eyes were on on eternity. He understood it and he lived it day to day. His life was consumed with this reality. And we see an evangelical precedent being set in his life. And we can use it as an example. We can use it as a pattern for our own lives. And as we continue on, we're going to see the stories in Acts change. Different things are going to happen. The stories are going to be wild. It's what makes the book of Acts fun and exciting to study. Is that The stories keep changing. But listen to me. The pattern doesn't change. The pattern doesn't change. And so the, while the story changes, the pattern doesn't change. Even though the story for James and Janina is changing, the pattern will remain the same. This is how the will of God manifests itself in our lives. While the story might change, His purposes don't. Now we're going to be able to analyze Paul's approach to his to missions by watching his patterns, by watching him preach, by watching him disciple, by, by watching him establish churches. And he had a plan. He had a plan. And he was executing it. And he was emotionally and intellectually unwavering in the, force, in, in, in the, in the face of his opposition. And we're going to see that today. And so as we begin Acts 14, the question for us is as follows. Will we establish patterns in our own ministry? Okay, now we're going to, we're going to talk about that in terms of Kaya as a ministry. We need to have patterns. But we're going to also be thinking about it in terms of your personal life and your personal ministry. And so while we have ministry objectives as a whole, we also have ministry objectives as Bible studies, Okay, that's how we're deployed, right? It's through those small battalions we call Bible study. And then you're going to also have a personal work because you come in contact with people on a day-to-day -day basis that God wants to use you in their lives. Does that make sense? And so the question is, will we establish patterns for our own ministry? In other words, will we be both eternally aware and self-aware enough to work a preaching plan. In other words, when I say eternally aware, are your eyes set on eternal things the way they were in Paul's life? Right? Are your eyes set on eternal things? Do you think in terms of eternal things? Do you wake up in the morning and think to yourself, I wonder how God is going to use me today to build his kingdom, the one that I can't see, the one that I anticipate in eternity future, right? That's a hard thing to reckon. Many of us have dysfunctional Christian lives because of the fact that we don't have our eyes set 
on an eternal agenda. So we have to be eternally aware, but we also have to be exceptionally self-aware. Self-aware of our weaknesses, self-aware of how we make excuses, self-aware of, of how we handle ourselves from day to day, self-aware of what our relationships actually look like, self-aware. And we have to be eternally aware and self-aware in order to have a functional preaching plan and a pattern for ministry. In Kaya, we have a vision, and that's to preach the gospel and disciple college and young adults. I, I mean, I think the name hints at that. Kaya, college, and young adults. Okay? I don't think anyone's surprised that our primary objective is to go and to preach the gospel and to disciple and to build up college and young adult people. And all of us should be constantly learning how to do this the best way we can. And, and, I, and I don't think it undercuts God's glory in any regard or His sovereignty by saying that we should do that as expediently as possible, as efficiently as possible, in a way that makes the most sense in a rational way for our own lives. I don't, I don't think we do God any injustice by saying that we need to be efficient about the way that we preach the gospel and we need to consider a, a plan that we can execute. Is everybody with me? Paul was constantly looking for the most expedient opportunities to work his plan. And he stuck with his plan. Now there was times in which God told Paul that his plan was incorrect. And we'll get to those stories. It's fun. That stuff's fun. He's like, no, Paul, I know you have a plan. We've been working that plan. I'm here with you, man. Uh, but in this case, we're not going to do things the way that you imagine that they would be done, and we're going to do them this other way, if that's okay with you. And Paul would say, yes, sir, and he would do that, right? God, God has the, the right to exercise whatever level of authority he, he wants over our plan, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a plan. We need to have a plan, and we need to have a pattern. Let's look at verse 1. We'll start with the pattern of Paul's platform. Lots of P's. The pattern of Paul's platform. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake. All right. Now, does that sound familiar? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? When we were in Antioch of Pisidia, Paul and Barnabas, the first thing they did was go to the synagogue to preach. That's what they did. And, and, and then they were expelled. It didn't in some regards, it didn't work out. So you would think to yourself, uh, you can imagine as they're traveling, them having a conversation, Paul and Barnabas, you know, that's a long walk, okay? All right? And so they're walking and they're conversing and Barnabas is like, man, uh, the synagogue thing, it was, good. it was good in a moment, but it didn't ultimately work out. What do you suggest we do when we get to Iconium? And Paul's like, well, we should go to the synagogue. And Barnabas is like, well, are you sure about that, man? Okay, because, because I remember that the Jews, the ones that, were in, that are in authority over the, the worship in the synagogue, they weren't big fans of what they were doing. And, and, and in chapter 13 uses the word expelled. Expelled. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if there's anyone that got expelled from high school in this room. But I would bet, I would bet in most cases when people are expelled, that holds a very negative connotation. Yeah? I'm not looking at Harrison because he was expelled. He thrived in high school. Straight A student. Is anybody surprised by that? So it seems counterintuitive for Paul, having just been kicked out of the Jewish synagogue, to simply go to another city and to another synagogue. But for Paul, no. It made complete sense. While the Jews of Antioch and Pisidia had rejected him, he knew that there would still be some Jews willing to receive. And, he, and we know this from Romans, that, that Paul and the apostles were sent to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. And so there's a principle at work. But beyond that, he was actually working a plan that was efficient and expedient. He knew that the synagogue would provide him with a platform that he wouldn't get anywhere else. He knew that there was already a crowd there. 
So Paul was looking for a crowd. And even though Paul knew uh, his witness to the Jews was drastically changing, he knew that the Jews had refused the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was always going to the synagogue to preach. And we're going to see this really all the way through up to chapter 21 when we spend the remainder from 21 to the end of the book, Paul's primarily in prison. It's like the end of his life, it's the end of his ministry, and he's in and out of prison a lot uh, through that time. But what we see between now and chapter 21 is we're going to see him continuing to go to the synagogue because he knows that there is a crowd there. And this was his constant strategy in every city. He was looking for a platform to address people, and as many people as possible. It says in verse 1 that the crowd was a, a great multitude, a term that hasn't been used since John chapter 6. We haven't seen that term anywhere since John chapter 6 when there was a multitude following Jesus. And so a great multitude means that was a lot of people. A lot of people were there. Thousands maybe even. And so why wouldn't he go to that crowd and let the gospel be the filter to funnel people towards discipleship? And so Paul was looking for a specific audience, and we see him primarily preaching the gospel to first and foremost Hellenistic Jews. So here's some terms for you. I don't, I don't want to confuse you. Hellenistic Jews means the Jews that were worshiping in Gentile regions, in, in, in places where Greeks were the predominant culture. And so he was traveling through here in this first journey through Asia Minor, where Jews were worshiping among the Greek people. Okay? The second group that he would preach to are what we refer to as, as the God-fearers. Okay? This was a term that was applied to the Greeks or the Gentiles that were worshiping in, in Jewish epicenters. In other words, these were people that were either sympathetic to the Jewish tradition or people who actually believed in the Jewish God, but they came from a Gentile background and then third, the people that were already disciples, people that had already been saved. He was going to look for them to help establish discipleship and to establish churches in their midst. And so he would go to these crowds in the synagogue because he knew this is where all those types of people would be gathered together. You with me? Yes. Now, Paul preached to other people. Okay, and we see that usually in one-on-one settings. He preached to pagans and philosophers and, and other types of people, but this is the predominant approach that he had. This was the plan that he worked. Paul knew his audience wasn't the naysayers. He wasn't looking for those who might, who might be hard-hearted. He knew that the hard-hearted and the soft-hearted would be intermingled. And so he let the gospel be the filter for that. That's, we understand that, right? We understand how that works. And we talked about that last week when we were talking about uh, good ground versus bad ground. And so Paul had a plan to sow the gospel. And the question is, do you? What is your platform? Who is, who is the audience that you are pursuing? How intentional are you about your witness? Now, I want to stop for just a second and say that there are some of you in this room who do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have never put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm hoping that in a message like the one that I'm, I'm preaching, is that you would understand how significant and how important preaching was to these men. And that the reason that they, tra- they, they these men gave up everything that they had. And you might not know much about the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Paul was a man of wealth and stature, and he gave all of those things up because he believed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had the ability to save human souls from imminent death and destruction. That Jesus Christ was the the difference between hell and heaven. He believed that with all of his heart, that Jesus Christ had come into the world to save souls. And these men gave up everything to live the story that I'm telling you now. And I'm hoping that that this story presses upon you the need for you to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ can't be some just moralistic teacher, some historical figure, some some man of the past that we we look to, to to, to the Bible just to get some sort of religious perspective. 
That's not sufficient for Jesus, and it wasn't sufficient for Paul. Listen to me. Jesus Christ died, and he hung on that cross, not just for some symbolic purpose, but he had your name on his mind. He, he saw your very face. He knew you. He loved and adored you. And it's the reason that he came. And it's the reason that these men preached. It's the reason that these men worked their plan. It's the reason that these men sought a platform to find the largest crowd that they possibly could so that they could warn people away de from death and destruction and towards eternity in Jesus Christ. And so the question for the believers in the room, those of you who've already put your faith in Jesus Christ, the question for you is, do you have a platform to make sure that that message gets into the lives of as many people as possible in the short time that you have on earth? Key point number one. For people who consider themselves a part of the college and young adult ministry, our platforms are, I'm going to tell you what your platform is in some regard, and then you've got to decipher for, out what that looks like in your life. You've got, to say, you've got to say to yourself, okay, how does that manifest in my personal life? But key point number one, our platform in the college and young adult ministry is going to be the campuses and workplaces where young people congregate. That's really simple. This ministry is comprised of young people and so our, our objectives are going to be geared towards people on campuses and in workplaces who are young adults. Is, that, is everybody, does that make sense? I'm not telling you anything new. Again, I think this is, this is probably pretty well understood. Now this might be obvious to many of you, but, but actually for a lot of us, what seems obvious is not actually a reality. Just because it's obvious to you doesn't mean that it's actually happening in your life. It doesn't mean that you're actually working that plan. It doesn't mean that you actually have a platform or an audience with young adults. It doesn't mean that like, you could very easily understand in your mind that God is calling you to invest and to reach out to college and young adults, and then you fail to do that. And now I'm not telling you that the only people that you can minister to are college and young adults. You might have family members or, or friends or coworkers. You know, I'm not telling you that the lady that you work with who's 50 years old, you know, that works with you at, I don't know, Panera Bread, uh, <laughs> you know, that you can't minister to her and preach the gospel, right? I'm not telling you that that can't be. But what I'm saying is that primarily for most of us, we're going to be working a platform towards college and young adults. And the prevailing presumption is going to be that you're going to campuses and workplaces that are dominated by young adults. Now, this is how Paul thought as well. He had, he had an audience in mind. He had people in mind, and he went to them. Now, next let's look at the pattern of Paul's preaching itself. Can we do that? So we're all agreed. That was very easy. Yes, Brandon. We, we minister to young people. That's what we do. Thanks for reminding us of that. You, you could have probably skipped over that point completely, but it's setting us up for the next thing. See, having an audience is no good if you aren't willing to speak. So congratulations, you're around young people all the time. You're around the right audience, but if you're not willing to speak up, it's actually, it's actually no good to any of us because you're not working the plan. Acts 14.1 says, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake. They, they spake. They used their mouth to speak the gospel message. You know, in chapter 13, we saw that the, the first opportunity Paul had to speak in the synagogue at Antioch, he took advantage of it very quickly. Remember, we talked about almost excitedly how he took it, you know, they're like, does anybody want to speak? And he was just like, like the first guy in line to get the mic, and he preached a gospel message. This was his attitude. He was quick to speak. 
He was quick to speak the truth of Jesus Christ. He was, he was anxious to, to do it. And for many of us, that's not where we're at. For many of us, we're not excited, but we're trepidatious about preaching the gospel. We're afraid. As we've said before in previous messages, there's a unique boldness that we see in the early believers that for those of us that live in 2020 seem to not have. Some of you are familiar with this term. A lot of times we refer to this church age, this, this time period in which we live as Laodicean. And that's a term that basically describes the fact that Christians of our time period are lukewarm. Are lukewarm. And, and while they might acknowledge who God is, they fail to live in the heat and the fire of a zealous gospel lifestyle. They fail to preach wherever they go. They're afraid to do it. They are trepidatious. They are, they are, are concerned about how they're perceived. Anybody relate to that? Concerned about what people might think about them. That's not how the early believers lived. Key point, number two. Our pattern must include the faith to speak up. Our pattern must include the faith necessary to speak up at every opportunity With every creature, is what the Word of God says, with every creature you have opportunity with, you need to be quick to speak the truth of the gospel. I I promised you that each time we, we, um, between now and the end of Acts, each time we are together, that I give you a quote from a missionary. So here's, here's one for this week. This is Jim Elliott. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. I heard... There was one of the small groups recently watched the movie End of the Spear. I think that was Julie's small group. And that movie is basically about the story of Jim Elliot. Uh, Jim Elliot was a missionary to a tribe in Ecuador. Okay? Um, and he gave his life. He ended up getting martyred. He was killed for his gospel message. And, and be, ultimately, if we're honest, because of the radicality of his life, all right. I don't know if you can imagine going to an unreached tribal region in South America. I don't know if you can imagine that in your mind, but he could imagine it. And it haunted him so much that he got on a plane and he went to these people who had never heard the truth of, of God's word. And, and some of us, that would never even enter our mind. But for a Christian that lives the way that Paul lived, that seems actually reasonable. And so what Jim Elliott says about preaching the gospel, this is what he says, it makes me boil when I think of the power we profess and the utter impotency of our action. Believers who know one-tenth as much as we do are doing 100 times more for God. With his blessing... God's blessing and our criticism. We're we're quick to be critics. But I I think that you don't really get to be critical unless you're preaching the gospel everywhere you go. You actually actually haven't earned the right to be critical of any believer. If you're not doing the one thing that every believer is called to do, you keep your mouth quiet. Oh, if I could write it. Preach it, say it, paint it, anything at all. If only God's power would become known among us. Now that's a perspective that not many of us actually have. You have to be willing to speak. Anywhere, anytime, any opportunity, with any person... That's what a devoted Christian life requires. And there's no way around it. 
Anything outside of that is faking it. Anything outside of that is faking it. Listen again to the prayer of the early Christians in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. I don't know if you remember, there's a really powerful prayer in the midst of oppression and persecution. Peter had spent some time in, 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 uh, among the Sadducees, um, and, and he was being mistreated. And when he got out of their, uh, their captive hand, um, the, the believers began to pray. And one of the things that they say in their prayer in verse 29 is, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may, they may speak thy word. That was their prayer. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of threatenings, in the midst of difficulties, the prayer that they had was that they'd actually grow in their boldness. And, and what I'm saying now might sound like a typical Christian message, right? That I'm, what I'm preaching right now, you could hear in any evangelical, Bible-believing church, any Sunday morning of the year. But what I'm telling you is that this is actually, this is completely foreign to the majority of the people in this room. And so you could nod your head and you could acknowledge what I'm saying is, yes, that's Bible. Preach that, brother. And the truth is, you don't live it. If boldness is something you struggle with, listen to me. Let's be practical about it. If boldness is something you struggle with and you know it, right? Maybe, maybe you say to yourself, well, I don't have the words to share. I don't know enough about the Bible. And what if they challenge me on something? I don't know about the Bible. Okay, that's cool. It's cool. You know what? Large amounts of knowledge is not the prerequisite for sharing the gospel. At what point are you going to know and have all of the answers? Like there's no place in Scripture where it says, well, once you get all of the answers, no, no, no. That, that, no one has all of the answers. The Apostle Paul did not have all of the answers. At what point are you going to come to a place where you're like, now I have enough knowledge, now I can start preaching the gospel everywhere I go. May I say bullcrap? Bullcrap. Listen to me. This is very simple. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and He saved you, then tell the story. Share the testimony of what Jesus Christ did in your life. Just tell the story to, to your friends, to your classmates, to your coworkers. Can I tell you what God did in my life? And they can mock it. They can mistreat you. They can ignore it. They can neglect you. They can expel you. It doesn't make any difference. The gospel message should be on your tongue. And you're going to grow in God's word through discipleship. It's going to happen organically. Don't worry about that. It's coming. You're going to learn and you're going to have more answers. You're going to be able to refute. Your apologetic is going to grow stronger. And you'll be able to give answers to people who have hard questions. In the meantime... Believe that the Holy Spirit wants to use you in the simplicity of, you know, I have a story to tell you. And when you're 45, 50 years old, and you've learned a lot of this book, and you feel like you have some answers down, I'm going to tell you this. You know what's the most powerful thing for anybody to preach? Hey, you know what? I've got a story to tell you about how Jesus saved my soul. I have a story to tell you. Would you let me tell you that story? That will still be the most powerful thing that you can teach. In fact, that's what we see Paul do very often is for him to just tell his story. The reason most Christians don't share the gospel is not lack of knowledge, but rather a lack of boldness and a predominance of shame and fear. The next question would be, well, what about the issues of opportunity? What if people are resistant? What if not every door is open to us? This is where prayer comes in. Okay? And so there's a pattern of Paul's prayer. Can we look at that, please? There's a pattern of Paul's prayer. So, so what we also know is that it, it's not good enough for us to have an audience. That's not good enough. It's not good enough, good enough for us to just preach. 
Because, because you can preach the gospel, and there could, be, there could be no power present. God has to move in the hearts of that audience. And we can't rely simply on our words to effectively communicate the gospel. We need to pray for God's hand of blessing on that work. Prayer requests for God to open doors were a mainstay of Paul's letters. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make, manifest, uh, make it manifest as I ought to speak. That's the prayer request. You understand? He's asking for, for them to pray on his behalf that God would open doors that when he utters the gospel, that it might be made manifest in the lives of the people that he preaches to. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, for me, it's a very selfish prayer, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1 says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course, that it may be uninhibited and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. You know, I like to believe that the church in Antioch was praying for Paul. His sending church remained full of faith, and they were praying for him. I like to imagine that. But whether or not that was true makes no difference. Midtown Baptist Temple needs to be a praying church. It needs to be a praying church. We cannot take anything for granted. This is why we have Tuesday night prayer. And this is why we choose to do prayer after prayer. We, we pray after we pray, for crying out loud. We ought to be about prayer. We ought to make prayer an integral part of what we do in terms of ministry. Why? So that our words would not fall to the ground. So that when the gospel goes forth, it wouldn't be lost on any man. That the tares would be pulled and plucked from the earth. That the stones would be removed and that the soil would be ready for us to seed. And so, key point, our pattern must include a team of prayer warriors. If the pattern is going to be right in our life, then we've got to build a team of prayer warriors. Who are your prayer warriors? Who is praying for you that you're going to have doors of utterance where you work, where you go to school, with your family members? Because honestly, if you're not praying about it, then it's not actually that important to you. And if you're not asking other people to pray for you, if, you're, if, it's, if it's just a matter of you being in your prayer closet, I mean, I'm told that there's something really unique about the fervent prayers of brothers and sisters when they're invited to be a part of prayer, when there's a community of prayer. I mean, we, we all know, we all know that you can, you can take a nice dry stick and you can burn it. You can burn it. Nice dry sticks. They're all over your back. They're all over your backyard, right? Yeah. Dry sticks. But many dry sticks, many torches make a brighter flame. And there's something very irresistible to God when the saints come together and pray and they work together in prayer and they strive in prayer and they call upon him and the faith of many is brought together that flame burns even greater, and you have a bonfire for the gospel's sake. You know what I'm talking about? So in this knowledge, we invite God to pour out His favor on our witness that we might be used the same way Paul was. Look at the remainder of that verse, that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. They believed. They heard the message in Iconium, and they believed. They believed. That's what it's about. It's coming to belief. 
we're going we're gonna to pause right here. Um, we'll continue talking about the remainder of this pattern next time we're together. But I think, I think in terms of what we've, what we've heard this morning, I think that the challenge so far is clear. Paul has set, we, we talked about this in the previous service, Paul has set for us an ensample, right? A model, a pattern of good works. And nothing's changed over the last 2,000 years. The only thing that's really changed is our zeal. Truth hasn't changed. The mission hasn't changed. The Bible hasn't changed. Regardless of what the critics say, the Bible hasn't changed. We've got work to do. And there is an example for our lives. And we need to have an audience. And so what you need to be doing right this moment is asking yourself, who is, who is the audience that, that God has brought into your life? Let's formalize that, that, that right now. Let's formalize that idea. Who are the people that God's called you to minister to? Who, who are you supposed to preach the gospel to? And then you need to ask yourself, do I actually have the boldness to speak out when the doors are open to me? Do I actually have that boldness? Am I actually ready and prepared at any moment's notice to speak the truth of who Jesus Christ is without any fear of repercussion? And then lastly, are we, are we activating the believers in our family to pray for us? We just prayed for James and Janina. Why? Because we believe that when the saints' prayer comes together like that, that God, is, God will be at work and that he's going to use that. Look, I don't know how to explain it to you. That we have a sovereign God who knows all things, and yet he finds great joy in the fact that his saints call upon him, his children call upon him, and we actually have the ability not to change God's ultimate plan. He's going to execute that regardless of us. But when our free will intermingles with his sovereignty, we actually have the ability to to move the hand of God. And if we couldn't, prayer would be a vain activity. And so we pray for James and Janine that God would use them in Tampa, that the gospel would go forth and he would make them fruitful beyond any of our wildest dreams that his kingdom might be built. We pray that. We pray it in belief. Why? Because we're foolish. We believe because we're foolish. We preach because we're foolish. And we pray because we're foolish. I don't know what to tell you. And you, you can rationalize the gospel away. You can rationalize what the book says. You can rationalize it away. You can point to whatever you think are contradictions. I bet we could refute that. I'm telling you right now, this book is true. And every man is a liar. And I believe it. And you can call that foolish, so be it. I believe it. And I'm going to function in the reality of what it teaches. And I'm going to live a foolish life. And when I get to heaven, I'm, I'm, I'm pining. I'm yearning to hear the voice of my Savior. That he might say to me, Son, you did good. Let's not waste what we have. Let's be about the work and let's set these patterns. Let's make them a reality in our life. We're going to pray if the worship team could come up. We're going to ask God to help us in these areas. If you need to pray with someone today, if you need to call on your brothers and sisters to gather around you, then do that. Do that. Be bold. Be foolish. And let's, let's, let's get right. Let's get these patterns set in our life. You know, Paul takes these patterns all the way to the gallows. You understand? He dies for this pattern. Now that's an identity. That's a man who knows what he's living for. And Many of us in this room, we don't know what we're living for. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to grab one of these, these counselors or leaders that are going to be hanging out up front. 
come and grab them and say, hey, could you explain to me this gospel thing? I want to know a little bit more about, I've heard about Jesus, I know the story, I've been to church before, I just need to know what it means to be saved. Could you explain that to me? And if you know you need that, then you come forward. If you know you need prayer about living a, a more perfect Christian life, a more devoted and surrendered Christian life, then you get prayer for that. But we're going to pray right now. You do what you need to do. If you need to worship, let's worship. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that, that we can't get through the book of Acts without our perspectives on Christianity being radically altered. In other words, I know for a fact that things that I believe about my faith and the things that I do on a day-to-day basis in terms of the way that I live, I can't continue to live that way and know that believers in the first century were living this way. It just, it just God, you, you, you continue to shake me. And Lord, I know that your purpose for me and everyone in this room that calls you Savior, that your purpose is that we would go and we would preach the gospel. And we need to have a strategy for that. And I, and I pray that you would help us. And, and, and God, I pray that you would give us a plan and that we would be focused on working and executing that plan. And at any moment's notice, if you want to move us, that's, that's totally fine. But in faith, we're going to presume that where we're at right now, that there's a way in which we're supposed to get the gospel into the lives of people. Would you help us to do that? Would you go before us? Would you, would you make the ground prepared and ready to receive even just the simple testimony, even though it seems, even though it seems foolish, God? Would you allow it to be profound in the ears of non-believers that they would know from, from my personal story the power and the majesty and the dominion of your Son, Jesus Christ. The power to forgive and to wipe away sin. To set, to set the captives free. Lord, would Would you use us to disseminate that truth into the entire world? We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.